Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Hallie White. We're at Soder today. It's May 7th, 2021. Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, the first question, the biggest question for everyone is why wine? Um, food led me to wine. I grew up here in the Willamette Valley, um, but not in the wine industry and actually more in Linfield. <laughs> my mom worked there for many years. Um, and then when I was 16, I started working at a local restaurant called Tina's. And back then, um, most of the clientele were winemakers, and because there were very few places to eat back then in the valley. And um, I became quite obsessed with good food and wanted to somehow be in the food industry, but didn't want to own a restaurant or be in restaurants forever. And wine seemed like a really natural progression from there. Mm-hmm. And one of my first wines I ever drank, that perhaps I was less than 21, um, was the Soder Brut Rosé. It was the very first one that Tony Soder made in 1997. And that was long before Oregon Bubbles were a thing. Mm -hmm. And he and Argyle, and I think Elk Cove, were the only people that had made sparkling at that point in the Willamette Valley. Um, And and then a lot happened in my life, and I came back to the wine industry as soon as I moved back to Oregon. Mm -hmm. So food was, food and local winemakers is what led me to wine. Well, let's talk about that. That that. What was your plan when you were in college? What did you go to college for? And what were you? What was what was your initial kind of post-college experience? So um, at Linfield, I majored in math and minored in Spanish, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my math major. I just have loved math always. It was always my favorite class, elementary school all the way through college, mm-hmm. um, and I had really great professors at Linfield than the math department that I adored, and that always helps, of course. And um, so I didn't actually really know what I wanted to do, but I worked at uh, Tina's all the way high school through college, and then started working at Lang Winery in college as soon as I turned 21, because they were some of my regular customers uh, at Tina's over the years. And um, I just was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I had a, an advisor at Linfield, Debbie Olson, um, for a Fulbright scholarship. And she knew I wanted to get out of McMinnville because I'd grown up there and gone to college there and needed to get out. Um, and she just happened to have dinner, I believe, with a woman who was visiting from Mexico City one night on a Pacific Northwest college tour. And she said, you know, I've got this student who really wants to get out of here. and." Her only requirement is that it's a country that speaks Spanish, which was true. And I was kind of willing to do anything, teach. Uh, I had been set up to work a harvest in Argentina, but because of the different hemispheres, I wasn't really willing to wait from college graduation in May until like February of the next year. Like I needed to get out of here. (laughs) And so um, this woman, I met her for 10 minutes the next morning before she hopped on a bus to go to the next college. And she said, well, if you want to move to Mexico City in two weeks, classes start in two weeks from today. Um, So I was 22 or 23 and said, great, sounds perfect. Um, 
So I quit both my jobs at Tina's and Lang. I have very little memory of those two weeks because it was such a whirlwind. Um, and I moved to Mexico City. I knew no one there except for this woman who I met for 10 minutes. Um, happened to end up living with her. She was looking for a roommate. We were close to the same age, and she was my boss at this new school. Um, so I used my math degree for a few years and taught high school math in Mexico City. Um, I really wanted to learn how to cook real Mexican cuisine. Mm -hmm. Growing up here, there was a restaurant back in the 90s um, called Cafe Azul that was um, in McMinnville. And then they moved to Portland and were super successful. And I still remember that as being real Mexican food. And the chef there um, had trained with um, Diana Kennedy in Mexico, who's one of the most renowned Mexican chefs and cookbook writers in the world. Um, and has been acknowledged by the Mexican government for it as well, for saving Mexican traditional recipes. And, um, and so I wanted to go and learn how to cook real Mexican food. I got distracted by the city and <laughs> fell in love and didn't, uh, didn't do that as much as I wanted to. But I definitely ate and drank my way through the country um, because food and drink have always been something that I've done when I've traveled. And that was amazing. Mexico City is. Uh, is a whole different world from McMinnville, Oregon. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, it's just a, just a mere 24 million-ish. They don't really know. <laughs> it's hard to count. Um, so it was amazing. It was, uh, it was exactly what I needed at that age. And I ended up staying there for three years before I moved back to Oregon, because that's what I knew and, mm -hmm. and where I had come from. When you came back to Oregon, what were you visualizing for your future? What, 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 when you came back, what was the first thing you did? Well, before I moved back, I was doing a lot of research into culinary programs because of my love for food continued. Um, and I was also researching education master's programs because I had been teaching for three years. Um, but this was right during the 09, 10, kind of the, the recession still was definitely um, present and none of those options looked super positive at that point. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know other than I came back and I contacted my food and wine friends because I knew them. And one of the main women that I contacted was a woman named Courtney Cunningham and she worked here. And I didn't remember or know anything about soda except for the pink bubbles that I had drank <laughs> when I was a little young. Um, and I remember waiting on Tony Soder and James Cahill as a teenager. And all I remember is that um, I was wickedly intimidated by Tony because he's just a very quiet, thoughtful man. And that James was sweet and talkative and cheery. And they were always lovely to wait on, except for my boss at Tina has always said, remember, Tony's really famous. <laughs> and I was like, cool, thanks. That helps me calm down. Um, but they were always very polite, and I remembered them, but didn't know any of this existed. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it didn't. Uh, this building was finished in 08, so it had just been finished as I was moving back from Mexico. Um, so I contacted Courtney, just said, I'm just looking to find work when I get back. Um, having made pesos for three years didn't really help move back and have a financial cushion. So. Um, I, she said, I'm not hiring right now. This was in August. Uh, she said, but next year I will be. And so she kept her word. And I came up and worked at Thanksgiving Open House that year. 
And then in January, they hired me full time. And I was, I believe my first title was the direct sales coordinator. And so Courtney and I were the only two employees here in the tasting room uh, for quite a while. And that was, which is a little crazy because inside today there's probably 12 employees just <laughs> in the tasting room. Um, and I was employee number five for the whole company. And so we were really tiny. It was still kind of James and Tony were the two main employees. Um, another man named Brian Seifer had come on and was running national sales and Courtney and I here and our winemaker Chris. So we were small. Um, and all of those people are, are mostly still involved, except for Brian now, uh, 11 years later. And then we grew as Oregon wine grew. Um, it was a really sweet spot in, in the Oregon wine industry. It wasn't so young um, as it was in the 90s and early 2000s. And it was kind of post the recession-ish. And we grew exponentially in the tasting room which was really fun. It was a little crazy. Um, we all worked really hard. And, but it was really Courtney and I for almost two years. Mm -hmm. And um, then we brought on some part-time help to help us just host tastings. And, and then we brought on Jules, who you have interviewed as well, in uh, May of 2013. And we just kept going. And, and Courtney was strategically trying to get out. She had hired me to replace her, but then we grew so fast she couldn't leave. And then she hired Jules to replace her too, and then she couldn't leave. And so um, she has been a consultant with us now for, I mean, since she left. So that was sometime in 13 when she really managed to get out in person at least. She still works for us part-time, uh, and but she does all of our graphic design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's been a wild ride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And since then, we grew the Tasty Room. I was primarily just um, in direct sales until um, 2016. Mm -hmm. So for six years, was up here all the time. And then in 2016, I was promoted to Director of Operations. And I was put on a really steep learning curve, again, <laughs> um, of uh, learning the whole company mm -hmm. and our general manager had left and um, we needed somebody to help kind of break down the silos of all the different departments because mm -hmm. we had grown so fast that we hadn't really put a structure into place we just rode the wave which was really fun um, <laughs> but we we needed some we needed to kind of take a step back and put some mm -hmm. structure into mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. so we did that um, and I worked really closely with uh, Tony and with James and our former national sales manager, Michelle Cove. I learned all I could about national sales as I was thrown into that as our GM was in charge of national sales and had left. Um, and then learned all the other departments as well. And I'm still learning because it's a lifelong learning. But I get to spend a lot of time with Tony, which is huge, mm -hmm. and um, have learned a lot about vineyards and a lot about winemaking and a lot about finances, which is a really important part of the wine industry and way more complex than maybe anybody ever imagined. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, direct to consumer sales, but I get to oversee all of those departments, which is really fun, mm -hmm. very challenging, um, never a dull moment. <laughs> and I get asked a lot what my average day looks like and 
there isn't such a thing. Um, but that's fun. Mm -hmm. That's why it keeps keeps it interesting. And then two years ago, I was promoted to managing director. So I officially oversee the whole company. So many more questions about that, but I want to back up for just a second. You mentioned kind of coming at it from a sort of food perspective. That was sort of the first thing was food. So tell me about developing the interest in wine and then about how you learned about wine along the way. What were the sort of the key education points for you in, in understanding wine? Yeah, so um, it hasn't been traditional. I've never taken any wine classes um, at, at, of any kind. No sommelier classes, no vineyard classes, um, no sales and marketing classes. I'm, I studied math and Spanish. Um, but I learned it the way a lot of people do, which is just being in the trenches of it and trying to be a sponge and absorbing everything around me. Just the, the people in this company have an enormous um, wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony's on his 46th or 47th harvest and is the continual student. Um, and James Cahill, same, he actually is now not part of our company anymore as of this week. That's a very exciting announcement um, that he's taking North Valley on his own, oh, wow. um, which is great for him, but he's been here for 20 years. So um, people here have been in the industry for so long and all have different histories and knowledge and education. So I've learned a lot from them mm -hmm. and then the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. It's a very um, convivial industry. We all like to hang out with one another and I hope that doesn't change as we continue to grow. Um, so just talking to people, networking, mm -hmm. making friends on all sides of the industry, um, sales, vineyard, production, uh, all of it. So that's, that's how I've learned. Asked a lot of questions, but mostly just absorbed everything I can from being with who I get the mm -hmm. privilege of being with every day. Yesterday, Tony gave me a lesson about vines from pictures on his cell phone. And I, I'm, I realize how privileged that is and that there are many people in this world that would love to get to have lunch with Tony Soder a couple of times a week and just talk about anything related to wine. So you mentioned the, the kind of the rapid growth that you were, you were part of from the beginning. Tell me about the, how you saw the place change and how you saw sort of the, the consumers change as people discovered Soder. What were they asking of you from direct sales and what were you having to kind of learn and strategize about as you grew? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so it used to be just one of us at a time hosting tastings. And so we had a lot of, early on we had a lot of people who had followed Tony throughout his career. So we had people who had, he had founded a winery called Etude in the early 80s in Napa or in Carneros, and um, so we had a lot of his kind of longtime mm -hmm. followers, and he had made wine at so many places, Cabernet and so many places in California. He had, a, he had a big following. And then over the years, it changed from just those people, and we kind of added on local tourism, which still back then, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but the level of tourism was just much lower than it is today. Um, and so, we were busy, but we were nothing like the numbers we see today. And not just us, I mean the whole Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the interest from other people who were not just serious wine connoisseurs has changed mm -hmm. because now it's an experience, it's very Instagrammable. 
um, people go for an experience, not necessarily just to search that unicorn wine, which I think used to be more the case. Um, I think that's probably the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. And maintaining that level of experience is challenging when you grow mm -hmm. to this many different you know, tables at a time. And we don't want to become Disneyland. We don't want to become the winery that sees 100,000 people a year. That's not our mission. Mm -hmm. uh, we see about 10,000 people a year, and that's a lot for this small building and how to maintain the level of experience while increasing the volume. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's always a challenge. And there's a lot more competition now. Mm -hmm. Back when we started this tasting room, there was very few other tasting rooms in our area in the Yamhill Carlton district. Almost nobody else was doing by appointment back then. We were always, we've always been by appointment, mm -hmm. except for like one month during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> um, but otherwise, we've always been by appointment mm -hmm. and always will be. Mm -hmm. You mentioned experience. Obviously, that's a big thing for wine tasting now. Tell me about what is the experience that you're trying to offer here, and, and, and how has that maybe changed over the years? Mm -hmm. um, we've always wanted to offer something that's educational, but not snooty. <laughs> and Tony and Michelle Soder were, were always really clear about that. They had come from, they're native Oregonians, but they'd lived in Napa for a long time and seen Napa go from when it was just starting as well in the 70s to where it is today, and it's very different. And they did not like the glam and the glitz and the, and the snobbiness. Mm -hmm. And the wine industry as a whole has a problem with um, not being necessarily super accessible price point, but also culture mm -hmm. of it being a little snooty. And there's reasons for that, but I, I hope they're going away for the most part. I think mm -hmm. they are. Um, and so from the beginning, Tony and Michelle always wanted anyone to feel welcome here. And that is still incredibly true today. Mm -hmm. And our hosts have to be able to host anyone who just turned 21 today to um, somebody who's been collecting Tony's wines for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that's a really broad spectrum mm -hmm. of a host being comfortable with. And we train our, our tasting room employees for a very long time, um, which is expensive, but we think it's absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. They're also in often a cabin or a separate building where they're alone with a couple or a group of five or six uh, for an hour or more. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we sat under here, Oregon <laughs> um, Spring. Uh, and that always wanting people to walk away with having learned something new, mm -hmm. but never feeling like they weren't welcome here mm -hmm. or that they asked a dumb question or anything. Mm -hmm. Because we want people to learn, whether it's a bachelorette party, which everyone in the wine industry will roll their eyes at. But, but so I heard someone, a friend of mine on a panel years ago at the Oregon Wine Symposium that I still remember, those bachelorettes could be your biggest buyers 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. So you better give them a good experience. And that's still really true. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to accept every party that comes in, but you should treat them the same way that everybody else gets treated. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that our experience has changed dramatically in that sense of education and uh, accessibility, mm -hmm. even though we're by appointment and we're hard to get into just because we're really limited on space. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's a different reason why we're not as accessible. Um, mm -hmm. And we hope that continues. That's what we're trying to figure out how to continue. Mm -hmm. 
as we continue to need to grow a little bit. You mentioned the other, one of the other parts of the rapid growth was the, the kind of the lack of structure. So tell me about as as you were as you were as a company or as as you individually were looking at, okay, we've grown. Now we need to figure out kind of this, what were the first steps towards sort of getting a structure in place and, and setting this up as a viable business going forward. Um, a lot of it was getting the departments to talk to each other more, and and part of that is just physical distance. You know, the tasting rooms here. The winery's down the hill. The office is in a separate building from that. The vineyard crew is out there or all the way down on the very bottom of the property. It's 240 acres and we have um, four to five main buildings where employees work every day. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, there are, I could go weeks without seeing some of our employees if I didn't make a very diligent effort to go find them mm -hmm. um, because it's just, it's physically it's far away. Mm -hmm. uh, and the departments were so focused on growing, right? The tasting room was focused on just keeping up with the traffic. Mm -hmm. Production was focused on keeping up with the demand for wine. Vineyards, same thing. Mm -hmm. Financial, just keeping track of everybody and making sure we're staying afloat. Um, and we had started two new brands in that same time, North Valley and, and Planet Oregon, and then our state brand, of course, that's been around forever. So everybody was so focused in their own channel basically, that it was hard to, and we hadn't, we hadn't had a general manager prior to that who sat down and got us all together. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not on him, but it was, it was just a new time in our company to sit back and say, okay, who are we? We knew who we were, we know who we are, but we really need to clarify it and get together and be together and move forward so we're all moving in the same direction rather than one person over there and one person over there and someone else going that way. And that will be a continual uh, challenge that is for any company. Mm -hmm. it's, it is, we're not all on the same page moving in the same direction yet, but we're, really, we're much closer to it than we were. Mm -hmm. And there's at least some channels of communication open that weren't prior. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the department heads in the company just see the value in um, talking to one another more so than before, because when you're growing that fast, it's just hard to stop and take a break and think about the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And for that time period, that was okay. We were growing. And we're still growing, but not insane numbers like we used to be. <laughs> we're not going from 300 visitors a year to, to 10,000 anymore. Uh, obviously, one of the big things that's, that's developed here is the, the wine club and the consumer and the wine club program and the consumer sales program. Tell me about the, the different channels for selling wine and how, how they've grown and what your role has been in expanding them as, as you have grown as a business. So direct to consumer, I was clearly very directly involved early on and then handed, so Jules and I oversaw that department together until 2016 and now she has been in, uh, solely running that department. Um, so the details of that early on, I was involved in every piece. Um, the national sales is our other big channel. Mm -hmm. And that I was not really involved in at all. Maybe took a trip a year just to help out the national sales team until 2016. Mm -hmm. And we had two people on our national sales team and one left in 16 and then, and then he stole the other one in 17. <laughs> which I still give them a hard time about. Um, luckily, they both work for a distributor that has our wine, so they still work for us in a way. Um, but that was uh, trial by fire, because 
we didn't have a national sales team, so James Cahill and I stepped in and, and figured out how to do national sales and brought on a man named Kurt Johnson, who had been at Beaufort for 14 years for national sales. And so now he is our main national sales member. But for those, those first two, two and a half years in this role, I learned national sales by no other choice other than we had to, we had to keep selling wine. Um, and we grew immensely also in national sales uh, because we started two other brands. Because originally it was just our Soda Estate brand. It was Brut Rosé and Pinot Noir and it was that, that was it. It was two, those two wines. And now we have um, five wines in our estate portfolio and a couple more coming. And we have Planet Oregon and we just sold North Valley to James. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's a big deal because we want to refocus on Planet Oregon and our estate wines. And, but what that meant for the distribution channel was that we went from selling probably right before I started, probably 2,000 cases a year total, all channels, to we made 1,000 cases of Planet Oregon the first year and now we make about 20. So that's, that, that growth is big and North Valley kind of did the same mm -hmm. thing. And uh, the estate program is now still only about three or 4,000 cases depending on the year. And so National had to figure out how to sell all those wines mm -hmm. because as traditionally in the industry, National's volume and DTC is, is high, or the higher end mm -hmm. and the margin. Mm -hmm. um, and we were, that was it for us too. Planet Oregon still is our FOB wine. Direct to consumer sells a couple hundred cases of it a year, but out of 20,000, that's just a, a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas our estate brand is almost all direct to consumer. So that's all very strategic. Mm -hmm. So that there's some crossover, but not too much. You mentioned the, the crowded marketplace, obviously more crowded all the time in Oregon. Tell, mm -hmm. me, tell me about selling wine and, and what the, how you fit into a crowded marketplace and how you make sure that you stay relevant as you grow. Yeah, that is a question that we as an industry discuss all the time. Um, and distribution, consolidating immensely. I don't know the exact numbers, but the, the number of distributors that there used to be compared to today is something in the thousands to like 10, mm -hmm. you know, big ones at least now. Um, it's a mild exaggeration, but, but the proportion's probably accurate. And it used to be that wineries were begged by distributors to be in their portfolio, and now it's completely the other way. And so we're lucky that we have history and we have Tony's career that he's been known in the national market for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but we know we can't rest on our laurels for that. He's always said and still says that he is mortal and, and that we need this business to thrive after he's gone. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our story and what you see on our website is not about Tony. It's about the brand and it's about the property mm -hmm. and that's intentional. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the crowded marketplace, um, we try to make the, the best, most consistent wine we can. Mm -hmm. And that has always been one of our pillars. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of really good wine out there now, which didn't used to be. You know, Oregon took a while to be consistent. Um, and there just weren't that many players here. Mm -hmm. And now there's players everywhere. They make wine in, all, I think, every state now. Um, and so that's a, consi that's a, a continuous battle. But because we've been out there for so long mm -hmm. and we have uh, total professionals on our national sales team, 
and we really focus on the brand and the experience and what they stand for and what are our values. Um, Planet Oregon is all for, well, the name kind of says it, with improving the planet. And our planet is this state because that's where we all live. And Tony has been farming organically since the 1980s, so long before it was cool to be green. Um, back in the 80s, organic wine was the hippies down the road making probably not what we would call wine so much. Um, and he had to convince some the owners he worked for at the time that they could farm organically and make high-end wine. Mm -hmm. So he did that before most people in the country, maybe the world. Um, and he's always been farming sustainably since then. At a very minimum, we've been certified live at all of our properties in Salmon Safe. And here we're certified by Demeter's, biodynamic and organic. We're trying to get Planet Oregon all to be organic, 100%, which for a, a wine of that volume is a little challenging. Um, but all of those things help us stand out in the marketplace more so. And we don't make low price point wine. Uh, so that's always a challenge. Planet Oregon is not, well, Tony and I were just talking about this yesterday, it's considered a luxury wine because it's over $20. And that, that $19.99 is a really big line in the wine industry and retail. And it's between $22 and $24 on the shelf. And that's, that's kind of a funny dead zone because it's not $19.99 and it's not $24.99. But, but that's what we want out of it. And that's what we need out of it, especially to make it 100% organic. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be doing quite well because I think consumers care more about the planet now, mm -hmm. especially the younger generations. Mm -hmm. Than, than they previously did. They still care about branding. People are still gonna take a, a prettier label off the shelf than a really hideous label. Um, I do. I mean, we're all drawn to, to different aesthetics, but we're drawn to more attractive things. Mm -hmm. And there's some really high-end labels at a really low price points. It's strategic, because mm -hmm. you're gonna take a beautiful item home whether or not you know how it tastes. You might not buy it again if it doesn't taste good, but it looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. But if it tastes good and looks good, then there's a really good chance you'll buy that same wine again. Mm -hmm. And I think, the, I think millennials are starting to drink wine more. I know they are. Um, I'm a millennial. We get picked on a lot. <laughs> Luckily, people are moving on to picking on Gen Z. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Gen Z is picking on millennials, too. <laughs> but the drinking habits, I think there's I see a lot more people my age coming to this tasting room than when I started. Mm -hmm. uh, when I started, it was a lot of boomers, as we would call them now. Um, and they were, that was because they were the people that had been following Tony for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case anymore in terms of the demographic you see when we have a wine club event. Mm -hmm. It's pretty evenly split between the generations from millennials up. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we want. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem if a winery's demographic is only 60 and up, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're not buying more wine as they get older, likely. <laughs> they have to drink what's in their cellar. <laughs> so it's the, uh, your original question about the marketplace and being competitive is um, it's competitive. Mm -hmm. And it's only more so every day. I think COVID will change distribution more than anything else. I think direct-to-consumer, it helped out a lot. Um, but I, I don't know how much that will really change the trajectory that direct-to-consumer was already on. Mm -hmm. but, but it will change distribution, and no one quite knows how yet. Mm -hmm. 
there will, there's more consolidation, but there's also more creativity for how to get small brands out there, um, how to have, there are still small distributors out there and some are doing really well and some aren't and some certainly closed during COVID. And, but there's, there's more diversity, I think, and we just have to, we'll see, mm -hmm. see what happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, tell me, tell me about learning the financial part of wine and, and what makes it so complicated and how you kind of keep a handle on it as the, as the, again, as the company grows. Sure. Uh, well, there's the long-standing joke that's fairly true in the wine industry that to, ha to make a small fortune in the wine industry, you have to start with a large one. It's not always true, but it is, it's an expensive industry to get into because just to get grapes off of your vines takes four years if they're new young um, and that's a long time to wait and then you have another year or two before you can release the wine and then you have to start you have to get into this very uh, um, busy and complicated FOB market if you choose to with your brand um, hi are you gonna come be part of the video <laughs> this is Bill and we also have Ted his brother um, but he won't make an appearance. He's shy. Hi, buddy. You get down. <laughs> um, sorry, financial, winery. Uh, I think the other, the, the really big part that makes it complicated, aside from just needing money to sustain yourself for almost 10 years, really, before you can kind of start mm -hmm. making an income, is that it is farming, which I think a lot of, it's often forgotten because we're a luxury industry. and luxury and farming are not two words that go together very often, if ever, other than wine. Mm -hmm. um, and farming is uh, more often than not, I think, by wineries kept as separate books, because mm -hmm. farming is this whole other world. And there are people like us that have estate vineyards and source from other vineyards and make our own estate wine, but also make wine from other growers. But for the most part, people are winemakers or people are vineyard managers or, or wine growers. And they're two different personalities. They're two different educations. There are people that know both, most definitely. Um, but they financially are very different businesses because you are dealing with mother nature and plants and everything that can go wrong there. And in our case, you're dealing with 200 other acres that are not vines that have animals and vegetables and just uh, property maintenance mm -hmm. that is uh, plenty expensive. Mm -hmm. And we're always trying to do it the right way in terms of biodynamics and sustainability overall, biodiversity, um, which tends to not be the cheaper way to do it, but, but we don't mind, you know, we're, we're doing it no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to meld farming with everything else that the wine industry takes financially is, is complex. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, there's so many different ways to have a winery. You can be a thousand cases or you can be 500,000 cases and the financials of those are really different. And you can be all direct to consumer or you can be all national sales or you can be a mix, which most people are a mix of some sort. Mm -hmm. And there's some unicorn wineries that have insane direct to consumer programs and that's awesome for them. And um, they are unicorns. And, and they are, a lot of them are in California because that's kind of where the Colt Winery was started. It's definitely where the Colt Winery was started. And still mostly remains. There's, there's Colt Wineries in Oregon, but they're not the size of anyone in California. 
And if you can sell 30,000 cases direct to consumer, like, good on you. <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone in Oregon's doing that. I don't think so. Um, so the financials of that look so different. If you can create any size of winery and be 100% DTC, great. Your margins are going to be a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, but your eggs are in one basket, and that can be dangerous, mm -hmm. as we all know. Um, in 07 and 08 orders, just James and Tony talk about how orders just stopped coming in. FOB orders just stopped. DTC wasn't really started here yet, mm -hmm. um, but orders overall just stopped. And if you don't have your eggs in multiple baskets, then you have less people to call on when you really need to sell some wine. Mm -hmm. And we have been very successful with our DTC program, but it's also incredibly expensive to run. Mm -hmm. The overhead for that quality of experience mm -hmm. is huge. Mm -hmm. And why a lot of people didn't do by appointment before, and why a lot of people, even though now they're doing by appointment because of COVID, still don't have the number of staff members that we do because we have one staff member per group. Mm -hmm. And now groups are often just a couple because of COVID. And so that math just doesn't add up. Um, it, we make it work, um, but it's not probably the margin that a lot of people would assume. Mm -hmm. But we are absolutely willing to continue to do it because we want people to go away with that quality of experience and that's more important to us. And we also think that's the long game. Mm -hmm. People will continue to buy our wine because of the experience they had here. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that adds up to that margin that we all want. Mm -hmm. um, and national sales is, is, is volume. It, and it needs to be, unless you're really um, just in high-end restaurants and just on bottle lists, and then it's about status and placement, but then in last year, you didn't get any orders. Mm -hmm. And I know that's true for so many people. And if we hadn't had our Planet Oregon brand last year, national sales would have been really bleak for us. Mm -hmm. And that's with our reputation and our history and our amazing relationships out there. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't, there weren't restaurants open to sell our $100 bottle of Mineral Springs wine. Mm -hmm. They just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it was a very stark reminder of why we have our eggs in so many baskets and how important that is financially. And we have an amazing CFO who I've learned an immense amount from. And Tony is one of the best businessmen I've ever met in the wine industry. Winemakers don't always tend to be the best business people, said with all the love to my <laughs> winemaker friends. Um, but Tony, Tony knows business mm -hmm. and has done it well over the years. Mm -hmm. And um, he understands the the complexities and he's trying to teach me about them of that he always says the bean counters don't run the business because there's a there's often a short-sightedness in the wine industry if you only and not just the wine industry but if you only look at the next quarter or the next year and the financials of it and don't think about the long game of marketing expenses and mm -hmm. all the things that are hard to measure the the ROI on mm -hmm. but that are extremely important to a brand's reputation and uh, longevity, really. Sounds really easy and simple. I don't understand why it's so complicated. <laughs> you, you talked earlier about uh, the Oregon Wine Symposium, and I, obviously I know you presented there many times, but t tell me about, like, the. you also talked about working with the industry and the industry working together. Tell me about the roles you've had working with the industry and, and why it's been important to you to be involved in, in things like the symposium. Um, the 
industry is a super social industry. Food and wine make it that way. Um, and also why most of us love it. And so networking with everybody around um, is all the more important because everyone else is doing it. So if you're not participating, then you'll miss out on gossip, but you also miss out on what people are doing to be successful and what's not working. You know, something that I've learned over the years from a lot of people is as soon as something is weird, call all your friends in the wine industry to see if it's happening to them, see what they're doing about it, meet up for lunch, try and just, just talk it out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, just to get more ideas. Because something that Oregon has always done so well, I think part of it's because it's Oregon and, and the Northwest, we're all very nice here, um, <laughs> as opposed to the East Coast, which I also love and appreciate the directness there. Um, but we're all really collaborative. And I think that's also partly due to our youth as an industry here. But even now with, I don't even know how many wineries are here anymore in the Willamette Valley, but a lot, um, we all still feel really collaborative, so with some very rare exceptions. And, and I hope that continues as we get older as an industry, because I know in California that's not the case in most places. It's much more competitive everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that's partly due to, I was just talking to Tony about this yesterday, that's partly due to California's age as an industry. When he was there in the 70s and 80s, it was exactly how Oregon is in the collaborative field, and now it's not. Um, but I hope that continues here. But um, my involvement with the symposium and other committees and boards I think is important also for that future of Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. And something in Oregon that still continues to be true is, is that lack of competitiveness. Yes, we're all competitors, that's a given. Um, but we don't behave that way. And, and um, there's enough pie out there for everyone to have a slice. And I think most people here recognize that. And so the more we can teach and educate each other the, and, and guide the future of Willamette Valley wine or Oregon wine, I think is invaluable because looking down the road at what Napa is today, for example, Oregon will be some version of that in 40, 50 years or sooner, who knows? And there's things, there's specific boards that I'm on like IPNC, which is awesome and it's a specific event, but there's other boards that are necessary for things like planning, like I talked to the Napa Valley Vintners uh, organization uh, executive director, I think her title is, a while ago. And she said the two most important things you guys in Oregon need to think about right now are roads and housing. And while she's like, she said, well, that has nothing to do with wine, you know, from the top surface level. She said it's absolutely everything to do with the future of your industry. Because if you drive down Napa during any day of the week right now, even during COVID, I've heard, I don't know, um, it's bumper to bumper and it takes people hours to get somewhere it should take. 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So there's lack of roads and there was lack of that thought earlier. And housing, which is already a problem here, especially after COVID. Um, but real estate is crazy right now. And Yamhill County in particular has a lack of especially low income housing, but it has a lack of housing in general. And they're trying to build houses as fast as they can. But that also is a structural problem because if the infrastructure is not there from the beginning, then you know, mm -hmm. we can go down that rabbit hole for a while. <laughs> so with that committee particularly, what is, what is the, 
what is the impact you can have uh, as the wine industry on, on something as big as infrastructure of roads and, and houses? Well, we bring a lot of tourism, so therefore a lot of money to the valley. And while not everybody's happy about that, um, it, it does allow us to do things as a community, not just as a wine industry, that, that other places that don't have the wine industry and tourism income could do. Um, and so I think that's, we're just, as an industry, just starting to get involved in local politics more, I think. That's still new. Um, but we work a lot with Visit McMinnville, for example, which is still a relatively new organization. And uh, figuring out how to do a cycling and wine tour and mm -hmm. things that are local tourism coming together more rather than just just wine and just everything else mm -hmm. around here. Mm -hmm. And so just that collaboration, I think, is is the most important thing that we're only starting to to really take seriously and get more involved. We've been doing it for a long time as an industry and bringing tourism here, but we haven't been working with, with other community groups as much as maybe we we should in the future. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it was we were just a young industry figuring that out. Mm -hmm. And in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, wineries here were just figuring out how to make wine and sell it. And that was plenty to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're big enough. And there's enough of us, and we're bringing in enough money that it's. I think it's part of our duty mm -hmm. to help the communities figure that out. Mm -hmm. We talked earlier about gen generations and the, the generation Generation Z and, and, and the millennials. Um, obviously, a big issue for the industry as a whole, and so specifically, is is the next generation marketing wine to the to a new generation of people. So tell me about strategies you're taking and thoughts you're having for the future as you're, as you're bringing in new generations of wine buyers and introducing them into this crowded market. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. Um, Jules is our marketing director and she and I work very closely. We also happen to be best friends. Um, and so this is what we talk about in our free time as well outside of work. And we're also wine consumers and we're millennials. Mm -hmm. And we do remember that we're not our only consumers, because this was we like something or don't doesn't mean everything everybody else will. Um, and we try to look outside of the wine industry a lot. And that's always my advice for anybody asking marketing and future questions is what are other industry, what are other luxury industries doing mm -hmm. to attract a younger generation? Because millennials are just starting to have some kind of wealth. We're we're delayed for all the reasons that everybody knows. Um, and that, but but we're starting to we're starting to buy homes and all of that jazz and uh, and and starting to drink wine and buy more expensive wine, mm -hmm. but not in the same way that our parents did. And online and digital is certainly a huge part of that. We had very uh, luckily planned for a new website to be launched last year, right as COVID hit. Um, so that was amazing luck and. And it was perfect because then we moved to all digital. We were closed here for months. Mm -hmm. And our only way for people to get in touch with us was over the phone and online. And most people of my generation don't like talking on the phone. Um, <laughs> boomers do. And Gen, Gen X, we're just not even talking about them because no one ever does. Um, but they, they're, they're a mix, of course, of both of those things. But so our digital strategy is all the more important. And we're constantly working on it. And how to summarize that is complicated. Mm -hmm. um, how do you take this beautiful 240 acre place and make it Instagrammable? 
-hmm. I mean, it's not hard to take a pretty picture here, but how do you make people feel like they're here and part of that experience? Mm -hmm. um, websites are all much more picture driven. And you, if you have more than two clicks to get to anything important like your shopping cart, you'll lose people. You'll lose me. Um, and that's often, Jules will send me something. She'll be like, will you just deal with, like, click through this and make sure it makes sense for you? Or if you give up, then we have to change it. And, um, and it's true. We're all trained by Amazon now. And if I can't press just a couple buttons and have something delivered to my doorstep, I'm going to get really annoyed. And alcohol laws do not make that easy on wineries mm -hmm. and probably other alcoholic beverages um, to get any alcohol to consumers. Mm -hmm. there, we have a full-time person that does compliance for us because it's insane. And there are prohibition laws that are still in place. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're changing anytime soon. So we can't be Amazon. Mm -hmm. We can get close, but just the legality of it makes that challenging. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be strategic because we it's not as easy for us to get you wine by tomorrow afternoon mm -hmm. as it is to get you anything from Amazon. And even Amazon dipped their toe into the wine game and then dipped it right out. And that was for other reasons like conflict of interest of buying Whole Foods. But, um, but still, it's a hard, alcohol's hard because mm -hmm. the laws don't make it easy. and. Um, so generationally, we still need to appeal to the boomers. We need to not forget about Gen X. And we need to appeal to millennials. And then make sure Gen Z is not totally left out either. And that's, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. and that's, but that's also why we have had three brands. Now we have two. Mm -hmm. Because Planet Oregon fits the price point of 20, a little over 20. So that's, for some people, that's an everyday drinking wine. And for some people, that is a really special occasion wine. Mm -hmm. And we're glad we have something that we can fit most people's buying habits with that price mm -hmm. point. And then we have our estate, which is 54 to to $100 a bottle. And that's not my daily drinking wine, even with my employee discount. And so, but that is some people's daily drinking wine, not that many, um, but more special occasion. And mm -hmm. so how do we make everything else about here and the story and the place and the people make people want to keep coming back to buy that $100 bottle of wine, especially when there's so much other good $100 bottles of wine coming out of Oregon and California and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, that's the whole package. That's the farm, it's the cute pigs. Um, that's the amazing culinary program we have. And all of those things that are added value but that you don't necessarily see what income they bring in, mm -hmm. it, on the bottom line at least. Mm -hmm. um, but we know how important they are and how do we, as I said before, how do we continue to maintain that and change without losing the boomers and, and gaining others? Mm -hmm. And that will, I think that will forever, that's what all businesses have always dealt with, right? Change is hard. Mm -hmm. um, but our staff, the majority of them are millennials across the board. Our winemaker is a millennial, although he doesn't like to be. You should ask him today in your interview. He, he likes to claim he's Gen X, but he's a millennial. Um, Jules and I are millennials. Our chefs, I mean, something like 80, 85% of our entire staff are millennials, all the way across the hierarchy. And Tony has been really, I don't know if he meant to do that, but he has been intentional about hiring a diverse staff 
There's more women on staff than men, especially in the management level. Um, and the age is important. If it was only college students working here, it, we might have a hard time keeping those boomers when they come in for a visit. But on the contrary, if we only had boomers working in the taste room, well, college students and Gen Z aren't going to have a, as good of a time maybe when they come to visit because they don't feel, they don't see anybody who looks like them. And that's what's really important, I think, for any kind of experience is people understanding each other. And that's not to say that different generations can't host other people. I've hosted plenty of people far above my age and, and have had a wonderful time and have amazing friends. But there's, there's certainly something to people uh, feeling like they fit. Mm -hmm. And so we have diversity in age, too, in our tasting room. Uh, we have a Linfield professor working for us now, too, Jeff Peterson. Um, and then our, our youngest is uh, just turned 21, not quite 21. They're in the kitchen, so they're not with wine. But still, we have across the board, while well, the bulk of employees are, are millennial age. Um, so I think that is incredibly important for visitors to see. And I think there's, there's clearly, um, there, people can talk about race a lot. I think there's also a lot of age discrimination um, in any industry, but of the you're too old or too young. Um, and I don't know that that's talked about enough. And we've had a lot of discussions about that because there's knee-jerk reactions to applicants and you're like, nope. That can't happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not that's not why and how we hire. Um, <clears throat> we talked about talked about COVID a little bit already. We'll talk about COVID a little bit more. Uh, I'm curious about 2020 in general. Obviously, a tough year for everyone in every way. From a business perspective, from from a, your work and the work here perspective, tell us about the effect once the pandemic kicked in, kind of the initial reaction and, and the sort of long-term effects, and how you see yourselves coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, um, I, I, are we out of it yet? I don't think we are quite yet. It, it, coming out in the <laughs> sometime distant future. <laughs> yeah, the, the post-vaccination time is what I'm calling it because it's not quite post-COVID yet. Right. Um, <clears throat> so initially, we were all terrified, as I think most people were, because just the unknown of what it meant. And we all, we didn't see anybody, right? We were in our homes, working from home. Um, we all kept our distance, our entire team, except for winery and vineyard who can't do their jobs at home. Um, we're at home talking on Zoom, figuring out Zoom. All generations of our company figured out Zoom together. Um, and there was definitely uh, worry in the beginning. And just anytime when people are, don't, there's the unknown of the global pandemic, everyone was scared that I talked to. Um, but our expectations we exceeded our expectations for what we thought would happen during COVID. We really had no idea other than we assumed restaurants and the national sales channel would just kind of fall off a cliff, especially for anything over $20. Um, and that sort of happened. But everybody pivoted, which has now become one of my least favorite words. But, um, but they did. We did. And, and we did fine. We didn't blow it out of the water, but we certainly didn't do what we feared we would only do. Um, and I became, in my role, kind of a cheerleader for everyone on the team and also had to make some big you know, decisions as to where the company was headed. But, but for the most part, I was just making sure everybody was 
you know, waking up and okay that day and and even if they weren't okay that day, but knowing they had support mm -hmm. and with 25 to 30 full-time employees, that's a lot to touch base with and just make sure each department head had what they needed from us as a company. And, and a lot of that was really honest communication of like, we don't know either, mm -hmm. but we're gonna get through this together. Um, and, and we changed the direct-to-consumer program that became a marketplace for our culinary goods. We did a lot of home delivery, which I know a lot of people did, but, but because we had a full kitchen team that we did not want to lay off, because we had just hired our full-time chef um, for, this, for that season at least, um, they created huge, beautiful meals for meal kits for people to, to cook at their own house. We created all those kitchen goods you guys probably saw when you first walked in, which we, we have continued to do. is just like a little pantry that we call our Mineral Springs Ranch Marketplace. So that all came out of that mm -hmm. and kept our employees busy because they couldn't host guests mm -hmm. and, and kept us bringing money in and, and kept us in contact with our customers. Because I think one of the scariest things last year was just uh, people becoming too secluded, mm -hmm. customers, employees, anybody, because it was so easy to not see anybody and stay in your own home and that was the advice. Um, and it was probably good advice, but you still had to, we had to figure out how to be in contact with our customers without being near them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the wine industry is um, terribly behind in its digital marketing or anything digital, technologically, they're archaic. Um, our systems are, are rough, they're getting better. And last year really pushed mm -hmm. the digital um, iceberg forward because we had to. And I'm not just saying us, I'm saying the whole industry. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna talk about archaic. The distribution software, everything included on the technological side of distribution is, is I don't even have a word for it, um, it's special. Um, but everybody's working on it now because last year they had to. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll see how distributors do. And that goes back to the distributor conversation really more than, than digital. But um, there's a lot of creativity coming out now. Mm -hmm. and while none of us would have wished for COVID to happen, it certainly had some positive effects in that way mm -hmm. of pushing people to think outside the box and change their business plan and um, think about how to reach consumers, whether it be through DTC or through FOB, in a different way because we were all stuck at home. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't just our industry, every industry was doing that. And then we had the alcohol laws on top of that that make it a little complicated, but people got creative. There was certainly some desperation. Um, there were some really great virtual tastings. There were some really bad virtual tastings, but people learned, people talked again. We networked together to just figure out like, what are you doing? What's going on? Mm -hmm. I remember the first two months that I was working from home, I was on Zoom the whole day between checking on with staff, checking with other industry people, checking in with our distributors, just kind of, we were just consoling each other mostly, but we were also talking about ideas mm -hmm. and what's working and what's not and where do you think this is going? And oh, I'm sure we'll be open by July. It's funny now. Um, <laughs> and, and then the future of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So I think, as I said earlier, distribution probably will change more dramatically mm -hmm. due to COVID mm -hmm. in some ways um, and others not. We still don't know what, what travel looks like because that was such a huge part of distribution and something I think a lot of us have realized 
we don't have to spend all the money and um, all the natural resources to get to other parts of the country and the world to sell wine because now we can do it virtually. But once some people start traveling, we probably need to travel too. It's just that it's that game. So we don't know what that looks like yet. Um, but usually in distribution, you go, you fly somewhere, you hop in a sales rep's car that you've never met before and have no idea what they've been doing with their lives for eight hours and spend all day with them, see 12 accounts or so, and then go have dinner with, I mean, you see hundreds of people and you're in a very tiny vehicle with a stranger. And sometimes that's great, sometimes it's not. But regardless, with all the new COVID everything, it's not really what anyone wants. It's not what the rep wants, it's not what the distributor wants, it's not what we want. Um, and distributors are overwhelmed with suppliers, wineries, coming to visit them, or were, because there's so many suppliers and so few distributors now. And so they're all still saying, for the most part, like, nope, 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 it's still, COVID's still an excuse. And it's a fair excuse, but it won't last forever. Um, and so we don't know yet what that looks like. I know a lot of national salespeople are super pleased not to be on the road like they used to be but I know some of them that could really use a trip. Um, I think it'll probably land somewhere in the middle. I don't think that we'll travel, you know, our James and Kurt were on the road every other week annually. And that's a lot. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of their personal time. It's exhausting. And um, while it was a really hard adjustment to go from that to being home all the time, I think they've adjusted quite well and would like some travel, but maybe not back to where we were. Mm -hmm. And then on the direct-to-consumer side, um, what the, I'd say the biggest change we made, aside from all the digital stuff and the, that will have a longer-lasting effect, is we were seeing too many people here, which from a financial perspective sounds backwards, I realize. But we were fitting as many people on a table that was comfortable and squeezing in as many people as we could to appointments because it's so hard to turn people down. Mm -hmm. And the experience was suffering somewhat because of that. It was too loud. It's not what we want. As an analogy, we've talked about, we want a spa, we don't want Disneyland. And we were a little bit too close to Disneyland and not close enough to a spa. And what we loved during COVID, whether we were closed or not, is this place felt like what it used to feel like and it felt more like a spa. And the energy was just, it was lovely. And so we've had conversations about how in the future we don't want to turn, we don't want to cram people in again, mm -hmm. even when we are allowed to again. And we had talked about that for years, but it's so hard to rip that Band-Aid off of turning half or two thirds of our customers away because the numbers just are so tempting. And when you have 500 people on your wait list for a month, it's like you just, you see the dollar signs. Mm -hmm. But our average check per group, when it's just a couple, instead of three couples together that don't necessarily know each other, is much higher. Mm -hmm. And COVID forced us to prove that to ourselves again. We knew it because in the beginning, that's how it was. I hosted two people at a time. Um, but it was so hard to turn those people away mm -hmm. that it, it was, it was one of the best things to come out of COVID is we have now realized we're not going back to, to headed toward Disneyland, we're, we're heading towards the spa. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a really big positive that we didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. again, 
wouldn't have wished COVID to happen to make us realize that, but, but it did. So as you, as you look back on your, on your time in the industry, you, you've talked quite a bit about some of the changes you've seen. I'm curious, what are the, what are the biggest industry-wide changes you've seen in Oregon? And, and what do you see as you, as you look ahead for Oregon's future? What, what will the wine industry look like in the, in the coming years? I think people will continue to look for experiences as much as that word is overuse. Um, I, I don't think, I think it's already changed that they're not just looking for good wine because there's so much good wine here now. And they're looking for um, the whole package mm -hmm. and particularly customer service and uh, being treated well. I taught a class recently for the Ayivoy group mm -hmm. and, and asked them how many of you would, if you, have, if you go to a restaurant, the ambiance is mediocre, the food is outstanding, the best meal you've ever had, but the server is shitty to you and the ambiance is weird. Are you likely to go back just because the food's really good? And most of us probably aren't. We probably would kind of suck it up and be like, okay, well, I really want some good food. But you're not excited to go. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's completely applicable to the wine industry and most industries, whether you're eating or drinking something or whether you're going to shopping and buying a purse mm -hmm. or anything. I think even grocery shopping is about the experience. I know I often go to Whole Foods even though I know I'm spending way too much money because Winco experience is painful. Um, as I do love Winco for other reasons, but um, well, I think that's all true in so many ways, like how you're welcomed mm -hmm. and how warm the, the, the employees are to you mm -hmm. and how attentive they are to you and that, and that hospitality got completely flipped upside down last year with COVID and people are questioning how restaurants will look in the future. And to me, that's a more about hospitality than it ever has been because there's a lot of good food and there's a lot of good wine and it's about the experience. It's about the rest of it because that's where you can get plenty creative with food and wine, but, but I, think the, I think we're just starting to see the creativity with ambiance and the experience in this new world. I mean, we've been, hospitality is not new. But, um, but post-COVID is different. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we've all been out to eat and it's every place is doing it a little different. Sometimes you have the QR code and they put your food on a table over there and you have to go get it. Or sometimes they come and drop it off and deliver it to you and everybody's got their different system. And some will change after COVID's done and some won't mm -hmm. because it probably makes a lot more sense financially in some ways. And then it will really be about the identity of what that restaurant wants to be and I think that all applies to wineries as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there are wineries everywhere that want to be Disneyland and that's great, we need those places. That's not who we wanna be and that's fine too. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot in between. And I think if, if everybody learned something in COVID, it was to figure out who the heck they are as a company mm -hmm. and who they wanna be. Because if you're just doing it to get rich, it's probably not the industry to do so. And, and just asking yourself why, why you're in it and why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about for yourself as you look ahead? What's, what's coming for you, for your role here, and, and in general as you look ahead for your own future? I feel like I'm just starting to 
really get a grasp on what it is to run an entire wine company. <laughs> <laughs> Only has taken uh, four and a half years. Um, but it's complex and I'm getting to learn from one of the best and he's done it for so long. And, um, but he also listens to all of us who are a lot younger than him and he learns every day too. And I think that is a lot of the reason I'm still here. Um, I never thought I would stay here for 11 years when Courtney was, happened to be hiring in a tasting room. Um, but it's because I've been giving those opportunities and there's still so much more to learn. Um, so I don't see myself leaving here anytime soon. I'm certainly not leaving Oregon and the wine industry. Um, I think there will be a lot to do, as we kind of talked about before, with, with the community now. And I don't know how I fit into that yet. I haven't figured that out. Um, but I'm on various boards trying to figure that out um, because I grew up here. And so I care more about McMinnville and Yamhill County. I don't want to say I care more. I care differently than somebody who maybe just moved here. Mm -hmm. and, um, and there's a lot of those people. I mean, McMinnville's three times the size as when I you know, grew up here. And that's not going to slow down. And the Oregon wine industry doesn't seem like it's going to slow down. And I hope it doesn't. Um, but how to do it well, mm -hmm. kind of like what we talked about with our business. Oregon's gone through the exponential growth, and then how now how who we are really, mm -hmm. and how do we how do we do that well? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm excited to just be part of it and be part of the conversation. And my family's all here, mm -hmm. so um, I'm I'm here, mm -hmm. and I love this company, and and we still have a long ways to go because we'll never stop growing in some way. I'm not saying growing and getting bigger, excuse me, um, but getting better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what, if someone were to ask you for advice or, or words of wisdom on, on getting into a role similar to yours in the wine industry or the business side of things, what, what would your words of wisdom be? Um, It would be to jump right in and start wherever you can get in. If that's on the, you usually start on the production side or you start on the sales side. And the sales usually means tasting room. Um, you certainly can get in on the financial side. All the, the whole wine industry needs more financial people. Um, but that's not often as involved in the, the social part of the industry if that's what you're attracted to. Um, or farming. I mean, there's so many different parts, which is why I find it fascinating, because it's not just one thing, mm -hmm. um, is jump right in and then network. And I had a, another Linfield student ask me that same question recently, actually, and it was just, it was network. It was talk to anybody you can, ask all the questions you can, absorb all that you can, um, be a sponge, because there's so much more now than when I was young, because there just were so few wineries back then. Mm -hmm. When I worked at Lang in college, our tasting room was five dollars. Our tasting fee was five dollars, and that I remember was a huge deal that we even charged. We had customers complain that we charged them to taste wine, and now you can't really find a tasting for less than like thirty dollars around here. Um, but just starting somewhere and um, figuring out what kind of company you want to work for, just like companies are always figuring out who they are, but. Do you want to work at a crazy busy tasting room that sees 
three to 700 people a, a day on the weekends? Or do you want to go high end, small, high touch, somewhere in between? Or do you want to go work for a big farming company? Or do you want to farm vegetables with some vines on the side? There's so many different ways to do it. Um, and you don't have to pick one and then stick with it necessarily, mm -hmm. but explore. Yeah, I think the only regret I have is that I didn't work a, a full harvest anywhere. And now I, I can, but uh, it would make the rest of my job really challenging. And, um, and I have friends who traveled the world going northern and southern hemisphere, jumping back and forth over the year. And, um, and I wish I would have just worked one, because mm -hmm. I would have an even better understanding. Because now I'm learning about production from the top down, and that's just a different understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and it's such a good way to see the wine industry around the world, because it's everywhere. And wine tends to grow in really beautiful places. So go work in Italy, go work in France, go work in New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, any of those, uh, South Africa. I mean, there are wines everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that would be my, before you work somewhere, not that I realized I was going to be here for 11 years, but it's hard for me to go work harvest in Argentina now, and I'm a little bit too old to do that. But, um, but that's, that's probably would be that and networking. Mm -hmm. Gets tougher on your back as you get older. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's all the questions that I have for you. It looks like we're hitting exactly about the right time here. So is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have? No, I think this is great. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality here, for your great answers. And of course, thank you to your, your mom for giving me a chance at Linfield in the first place. <laughs> I will forever be indebted to her for that. So uh, I'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.